You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Dan, when you were teaching, did they focus on like leadership development at all? I don't think there was much focus on that issue. And it it just never even occurred to me, I don't think, because, you know, I wanted to do things in my own classroom, but I didn't necessarily know how I could be a leader in my school. And so the only really step up you could make as a teacher was to become department chair. But I had a great department chair. She was our episode, episode three, three guest, Pennington. Kim Pennington. And, you know, she always looked at her job as being collaborative, not to be like a boss type figure or anything and to kind of move things forward. But um, there's been some really interesting discussions lately that the problem with one problem with teaching is that, you know, you can't move up in the field. There's there, you either move out of the classroom or you stay in the classroom in the exact same position, same salary, with no new leadership roles. And so there's been a lot of talk about master teachers and whether that should be a, a component of what we do, where you have more of a mentoring role, more of a leadership role in the school. And you can actually kind of move up in status, too, as you move through your career. And you don't have to leave the classroom to become a more of a leader in your school. One of the things that I've noticed is that there's the opportunities that are like you need to kind of create on your own. So like I've gotten involved in my local union as a part of the new member, the new member program. And so that's a way that I kind of like sought out a leadership, you know, opportunity, but it doesn't seem like there's any systematic way to actually that schools focus on that at all. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, a lot of these opportunities we take on to be leaders, Michael, for example, being SS chat co-leaders and, and moving that forward or doing other things like that. Um, unfortunately there's no pay for it, (laughs) (laughs) which by the way, feel free to PayPal me money. If you want to, you can tweet (laughs) me and I will send you my account. Uh, we do take tips. We actually have someone to talk today about leadership development. Someone who I used to work with in my former life when I worked for city year, his name is Dr. Max cloud, Dr. Max cloud. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thrilled to join you guys today. We're thrilled to have you. Can you tell us a little bit more about who you are? Who is Max Clow? Who is Max Clow? Sure. Well, I can tell you I live in Boston with my wife and two kids. Professionally, right now, I'm the chief program officer at an organization called the New Politics Leadership Academy, which is actually trying to recruit alumni of service programs, whether military vets or uh, alumni of AmeriCorps or Peace Corps, to run for office. Uh, which is kind of a new, uh, it's a new area for me. But prior to being here, I was 10 years at Sidier, which is how I know you, Michael, where uh, I ended up as vice president of leadership development. And my I spent a decade thinking about how do we develop these core members who are young adults spending a very intense full-time year in schools trying to support students? How do we, do we develop them as leaders through this really demanding experience? Max, we need we need to recruit you to... Uh, get some teachers running for office too. That's a, a big discussion we had on a recent episode. We had absolutely. Uh, we had Sean uh, Sean Shaheen, who was one of the forty teachers in Oklahoma who ran for local office. On uh, unfortunately, he did not win, but some of them did win. 
Yeah, there's a lot of folks stepping up now, which is exciting. Yeah. When you did leadership at, at, you know, at City Year, what are some things that you focused on? Well, it's relevant to say that I, I got a doctorate in leadership education, I should probably mention, grounded in a particular approach called adaptive leadership, which was developed by a professor named Ron Heifetz at the Kennedy School of Governments. And it's relevant to point out that he makes this distinction that I think is really important, which is noting the difference between a position of authority, which is a kind of a formal position on an org chart with people under you, and leadership, which he defines as uh, any attempt to mobilize a group to address its challenges. And it's a distinction that I think is really important for anybody who cares about social change and servant leadership, because many of the moral exemplars that we revere, you know, a Rosa Parks or a Gandhi or a Malala, these are folks who actually didn't have any formal position of power. They had no authority, but they exercised tremendous leadership. And I find it a very helpful uh, kind of starting point for these conversations, because in the discussion you guys had at the very beginning of this, you were talking about leadership, and it was clear that you were saying leadership meant moving up, stepping up to some higher position of authority, moving up the org charts. And I will honor that, you know, that um, I think about that is uh, attaining a higher level of authority, but that is not the fullness of leadership. And any teacher in a classroom, actually any student, anybody in a system can be a leader. And that is the way that that's the thinking about leadership that informed the approach that I took. Yeah. And I, I think the thing in schools is I just wanted more pay, Max. But um, <laughs> understandable. I'm kidding, obviously. I think that makes a lot of sense because, of course, you have teacher leaders in schools. So, Max, one of the things that I, I enjoyed that you brought to City Year was this whole concept of the idealist journey in the year as an idealist journey. Do you mind talking a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So, the idea is that any year of service, which relates to City Year core members and also to teachers, is that it is actually a dual journey, meaning it has both an inner dimension and an outer dimension. And often we, we just get really focused on the outer dimension, which means being of service to the kids and trying to teach the kids and uh, develop the kids and be of service to the community. But at the same moment that's going on, there is also an entire inner dimension that is really important. And that is about us connecting with our own deepest sources of mission and purpose, staying awake to the questions that we're struggling with, being aware of how we're being transformed and kind of what are the inner the inner challenges that we face, any voices in our head that say that we're not worthy or we're not good enough. There's, there's a whole inner dimension to the work. And the idea is that they're both happening at the same time. And to really unleash the full power of leadership development, we need to stay focused on both in an integrated way. So the idealist journey was meant to complement all of our other leadership training, which is about behavior management and you know literacy tutoring and all the all the skills that core members need, but also give them the space to intentionally turn away from the kids, turn away from the from serving others, and focus on the inner journey and their own their own inner lives and how they're being changed within themselves. And the deepest idea behind it is that personal growth and service to others is actually too interconnected to separate. And when we learn and grow ourselves, our capacity to be of service to others is enhanced. So we need to intentionally cultivate inner growth while people are serving. I know that a lot of this is based upon Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, which I know a lot of our, particularly our English list, English teacher listeners will, will understand. Absolutely. Do, um, do you mind briefly just talking about like the different steps of what the year would look like? I know that there's a lot more to it because I feel like it really does map out to a school year. Uh, absolutely. 
I'm a huge Joseph Campbell fan. I kind of encountered him late in my own journey, and suddenly my whole life made sense in a new way. For folks who don't know, Joseph Campbell was a comparative mythologist. He studied myths told around the world, you know, at north, south, east, west, everywhere, and realized that underneath all these seemingly completely different stories was really one story. And he called it the hero's journey. And once you understand it, it really relates, it helps you understand every movie you've ever seen, first of all, but it also actually relates to our own lives. And at its most basic, it has three stages. The first is where you depart from your ordinary community. You leave behind the familiar, ordinary, normal life you've already known and head off into an experience you don't fully understand. That's always how it begins. And then the heart of the journey is the road of trials. And on the road of trials, you are tested and challenged in profound ways that pushed you past your known limits. And in going past your known limits, you discover hidden resources of courage and strength and wisdom and skill that have always been within you. You just never knew they were there until you were forced to access them. But the journey never ends with the road of trials. It ends with a stage that's called the return, which is where you find a way to take everything you've learned, all the gifts you've gotten from the journey, all the the growth that happened through your struggles, and you find a way to use it to be of service to others. And it's this basic three-stage journey that it explains the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, but it's also the life of Martin Luther King and uh, and Rosa Parks. And it's also anybody who steps into a classroom or chooses to do a year of service. It's a pretty powerful way of understanding the experience. The sessions that you have when you intentionally look inward, particularly during the road of trials, what do those look like? Sure. Well, we work pretty hard to try and capture the what resonates with the inner experience of core members at different points of the year. So kind of, you know, there's the departure, there's the really exciting early stages, which is just like craft your mission statement and try and achieve some inner clarity when you're still at this very exciting stage. It doesn't take very long before kind of the bloom is off the rose and, and service gets hard. And there's some work around understanding conflict. Confronting our shadow is work that we started doing at the city year after you left. Michael, but this idea of we each have a shadow part of ourselves um, that we need to own because if we don't own it, it influences our behavior in ways that we don't fully understand. At the mid-year, it's appropriate to revisit our mission and our shadow mission and our values and check in with ourselves. Are we living in alignment with our own deepest sense of mission and purpose? And then there are questions like, what gifts are you getting from your journey? Like, can we be awake to these lessons while we're actually immersed in it and not just five years after we graduate, suddenly realize that we got something really valuable from the experience. Can we, be, can we be a little more awake and present to how we're being changed and what we're getting from our experiences, even as we're immersed in the middle of it? You know, as a teacher, in the beginning, we do set goals, but we don't do that constant, you know, you know checking in with ourselves on, on, on how we're doing it. as leaders. After that, we just kind of set a goal and we might individually check in, but there's not that time where we kind of get to sit there and really focus on like what's actually going on. I mean, just prioritizing that this is something that we should make some time for sends a powerful message to people. I think in education also, reflection is so important, but it, like Michael said, it's not emphasized that much. You know, to stop and figure out what's happening, what you're taking from ex certain experiences, what challenges you're facing, and how those can help you grow. It's something that, you know, in the busy day-to-day -day things, it's we don't always take time to do that. Do you find that a lot of people have time like building that into their schedules to actually stop and say like, okay, I'm going to give attention to really making sure that I'm getting the most out of these experiences and growing as much as possible? 
what I find is there's always some small number of people, introverted people, who, who really prioritize it and make time. The vast majority of people, I think, allow the urgent to push aside the important. And in my work, I vowed we're personally, I want to live always in the important but not urgent. And I want to open up spaces in organizations at scale. I mean, that was the challenge at City Years is not to just do this with a small group of people, but to build an organizational capacity at scale that lets people focus on the important but not urgent. Um, which is questions like, what is my own personal mission? What are my values? And uh, do I live in alignment with that? And it's just never the most urgent thing on anybody's schedule, but it's profoundly important. And I think it's a, a, a gift to people if an organization prioritizes some spaces to let people live in that space. I think also, you know, I, I talk with pre, I work with pre-service teachers. And one thing we talk about is we have a unit on teacher ethics and we actually like examine the National Education Association ethics and we look at the state of Texas ethics. But I've never actually heard like ethics on like a large scale discussed discussed in schools. But the thing that, that having like ethical guidelines do is they provide you kind of a moral compass so that you don't in the immediate you know moment of a situation um, react in ways that are a disconnect from the ways you want to act. And so I, I wonder if I'm hearing that's kind of a, and so maybe one, one implication we could talk about later, Michael, is, is implications for teachers focusing on, on their ethics and moral compass. I mean, do you see that as being something that people have to spend a lot of time defining what it is exactly they believe and want to live up to? I do, and I'm mindful of the potentially problematic way that you talked about it, of giving people a moral compass. Because I actually think you can't give people a moral compass. What you can do is create a space and offer an invitation and invite people to get clear on their own moral compass. But I, you know, I think a lot of these ethics courses or here's a case study or here's some great thinker who's telling you what he thinks, but that really just lives at the level of people's minds as information and might not really be internalized, may or may not be aligned with their own deepest sense of what's important. And uh, so I really think it's, um, we have to be mindful that we can't give this to people. We can't insert it into people. We can hold open spaces and invite them to do the work recognizing that some folks won't accept the invitation. Um, but it, anybody who does can do that work for themselves. Is it always an individual endeavor or do groups of people ever develop things together where they develop a, a plan for what they would like to do or achieve together? The way we set up the idealist journey at City Year was that it's a small group reflection experience. So you're in a group with anywhere from eight to 20 other people and the idea is you're doing personal work, but it doesn't always have to be private. There's great value in being in a room with other people who are struggling with their mission statements and what is it like to craft it and to get clear on it and hear their struggles and their wisdom. But you're really doing personal work in community. And we found that to be powerful to not just be alone in a coffee shop doing this by yourself, but hearing how other people are struggling with it. Is hearing each other, is saying your goal out loud to a group of people, is that part of the, uh, to hold yourself more accountable or to get feedback or what's the, what's the value in doing that? I don't think anybody would question that if you want to figure out how to be a better math teacher, there's real value in talking with other math teachers about how do you do math? How, how do you teach this particular challenge and what's your approach and what are your struggles and what are your best practices? And we take the same approach to the inner work because it is work and just opening up a space where people say, wow, it's really hard for me to get clear on my mission. And somebody else says, gee, I've been clear on that since I was 15 years old. 
Um, and for me, it's really helpful to dance or sing songs about it. And for me, like you just open up this space where you suddenly um, are exploring the terrain of how to do inner work with other people. And just a tremendous amount of wisdom is surfaced when you open up a space for that. The spark sessions in particular, I found very helpful. I know my one of my friends who still works for City Air, she was talking about that the other day. Can you tell a little bit about the spark sessions and how they would work? Absolutely. The spark sessions were the piece that made everything come together. I will say when I started doing this work, I was committed to bringing reflection to City Air on the belief that it did so many things great, but the one piece that was kind of missing was a really substantive reflection experience. I didn't know how to do it at scale and it really didn't work very well. And Michael was there in the early years. It was uh, it was not so liked by a lot of core members, <laughs> but the piece that changed everything was I found a Boston nonprofit called the Right Question Institute, which had developed a, a um, framework called the question finding to help people find their own questions. And we tweaked it a little bit for our leadership development purposes, but it was really the piece that changed everything. And the idea is you empower people, you give them a process to identify a question that is really alive for them and then distill the essence of that question. And the trick is, the way I always talk about it is in the face of tremendous complexity in the outer world, the most powerful thing we can do is learn how to achieve greater clarity in our inner world. And so helping people get really clear about the most important question and the essence of that question, and then let them bring it to peers, made for a really powerful experience. Now, when they develop their own question, then they, they talk about it with their, with their cohort to get like further clarity on it. And then, then they switch off. Part of the reason that I'm asking this is because I feel like this could be something that's easily implementable, particularly for, not easily implementable, but for people who are interested in doing a mentor program at school. Yeah, there was a small group and every at every session, one member of the group was assigned this challenge of going through this process and showing up with a spark question, which is a clearly defined question for the group to explore. And then the group has 30 minutes to just... Uh, discuss it and we're very clear it's for the purpose of learning. This is not to drive towards a solution. This is not a task force to solve things. This is just a space to think deeply. And, you know, there's mindfulness in the Eastern sense, which is quieting the minds. But then there's mindfulness in the Western sense, which is really being clear that you you don't have any hidden assumptions and you've, you're, you're really exploring something from multiple angles. And there is tremendous value in just having a space to bring something to peers and hear how they push your thinking and challenge your assumptions and, and make you to make you think deeper about something. And that's the way we set it up. Could it be something like I'm having an issue teaching a certain skill or I'm having an issue with a certain group of students or I'm trying to implement this new program or I want to bring like, you know, um, uh, gaming into the classroom? Like, could it be something as simple right. as that? It could be anything like that. Sometimes it's, I have trouble prioritizing my tasks for the day. How do other people find out how to prioritize things? It could be I'm having, uh, I'm struggling to connect with this one particular student who has these kinds of issues. How have other people done that? Um, it could be national service is not yet a civic rite of passage. How can we make this more part of American culture? Like it could be this, oh, it wow. could be whatever is alive for people. And we're very clear, like this does not have to be service focused. Although it can be if, if that's really alive for you. It, it often becomes a place to process big things like the Boston bombing that happened a couple blocks away from city or headquarters. And people have questions about that. The killing of Michael Brown, the, you know, uh, um, all this social justice 
churn, the, the issues that are churning in this country, and people really are thinking deeply about it, even though there's almost never a space that is specifically focused on, here's a place for you to just process it and think through it with other people. You know, Michael, I'm starting to see lots of implications for social studies teachers, right? Um, when you think of current events and issues happening in society, because I think a lot of teachers are unsure how to bring these issues into a classroom and create a space to talk about them, um, particularly when you think about the election. You know, there's so many heated opinions. How do we discuss something like like that is controversial or that people bring a lot of prior beliefs or their ideologies maybe influence the way they believe? What would your advice be for for how that discussion can be facilitated? Well, I think the key idea here is there's a difference between a teacher giving people answers through a curriculum and a teacher holding space in which the the most alive questions of the students can be at the center of the conversation, you know, and, and it's approached with curiosity. One of my favorite ideas from leadership literature is the idea of moving from hero to host. And that means we have one archetype of leadership, which is the hero who has all the answers, who tells everybody what to do, who gets everybody uh, to follow directions and solves everyone's problems. And that is no longer effective in the world that is as complex and interconnected as our world is today. So the new archetype is leader as host, which means the leader who convenes people for a space of inquiry. And that host might not have the answers, but they might have a meaningful question and they are they hold a space where people can grapple with the question. And that both builds a sense of community and also deepens understanding of whatever question is being explored. And that is a, a way for teachers to understand their role. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily their job to show up and tell people the answers. It can be their job to hold a space and invite people to show up with their questions. And there's, there's probably a degree to that, Michael, that um, social studies teachers have to help students develop those skills too, right? To ask good questions and to, because that, that's a natural part of it. Kids are very interested in discussing issues, um, but there's just moments in discussions where helping to ask another question to, to further their thinking or to challenge kind of assumptions maybe they hold is a really valuable teaching skill. Um, but I love the idea of, of setting that space aside because I think so often we just don't do it and allow those those central questions to take root because Again, we're busy. If you're teaching U.S. history, it's easy to ignore the election, whereas your students may just feel this need to discuss it or this they may feel anger or they may feel you know some kind of passion about it. And I think creating that space seems to be such an um, important part of, I think, helping students grow as citizens and individuals. And just defining that as the work of how do we hold space is a key kind of paradigm shift. It's interesting. I feel like if our you know, principle, building principle was focused on creating space for people to ask these questions, to get into these groups and have these types of conversations, that seems like it would create a very, you know, a tight group of, of, of educators. So hopefully we have, you know, principals and teachers listening in. So maybe, you know, we can kind of see some of this happening at the building level, at least. And I'll point out, Michael, some countries do it better than the U.S. It's very interesting. What? You know, our, I know you'd be so surprised, but. We just seem to be such a task-oriented society oftentimes, and maybe our schools are like that because of standards and standardized testing, and it's covering these things and, and, you know, before you get to the next thing, and we can lose focus of, of those other big questions. But um, I know in, you know, I think we maybe have discussed it on the podcast before, but like in Japan, they have what's called lesson study, where the teachers 
um, will pick a topic that they want to teach about, and they really spend a lot of time together working on that. And that's not exactly the same thing as we're talking about, but what they do is they do have space where teaching that topic is the focus of what they're doing. And then they also go spend time in each other's classrooms, watch each other, give feedback. And so they work through it very collaboratively through some of the problems and issues they have. Whereas a lot of U.S. teachers, it's you just feel like you're going solo. Well, I have to say there's even a deeper issue at work. I've had a, you know, obviously I spent a lot of time at City Year and I have a chance to do some work with Teach for America and with Blue Engine, with multiple kind of education-focused service organizations. And the way I understand it is there's a, profound paradigm shift that needs to happen, uh, which is for many years, we've thought about the world in Newtonian terms, like the world is a big machine. And if we can just define our goal and then design a machine that should produce that goal and then put the people into play, put the pieces into place and push the machine as hard as we can, we will produce that goal. And if we're not getting to that goal, we should push the parts harder or maybe redesign the machine. It's a whole way of thinking about things that is reaching its limits in pretty profound ways. And the alternative is to understand how living systems work, uh, which are very different from machines. And they are driven by purpose and meaning and connection and being able to rest. Uh, they're actually you know, more sustainable and effective when they're able to balance rest with hard work. And there's just a whole set of principles that sound ridiculous if you think you have to define the goal and then hold everyone accountable to their parts in it. And getting people to, I, I think a lot of people are waking up to the limits of the old paradigm without really understanding what does it mean to design organizations grounded in the principles of living systems. Oh, I love it. You're, I'm having flashbacks to grad school, Max. I'm reading Fritjof Capra's uh, Web of Life. Um, well, was, the, the big name for this is Margaret Wheatley, who wrote a seminal book called Leadership in the New Science. Okay. And, yeah, it informed everything I did at City Year and the work at New Politics, and I, it really helps me understand uh, why organizations are not focused on this and the the problems of not creating these kinds of spaces. I, I think um, in in Fritjof Capra's work, which I'm sure is related because he talks about living systems. Yeah. Um, he talked about that our key problem is a problem of perception, and it's it's how we perceive the world. And then it was largely a critique of modernist, you know, kind of Newtonian ways of understanding the world as these series of parts, the clock metaphor, machine yep. metaphors, yep. as opposed to seeing the, you know, the um, the forest in addition, the more holistic way of understanding the interconnectedness of problems and issues. So Absolutely. this is, ooh, I just have flashbacks. I don't get to go to grit, you know, that's even once you leave grad school, you don't just get to read fun books like that and talk yeah. in groups about them sometimes. And listen, you know, I love I love the big ideas about it, but my whole career has been, can we actually make this practical and useful and put it into practice in organizations? Because I do think it's more than just, it's more than just interesting ideas. It's actually an important way for thinking about how to develop people and how to think about structuring organizations in ways that sustain people. Before we close up, do you mind talking to us a little bit more about what you're doing at the New Politics Leadership Academy? Absolutely. It's a natural progression from what I was doing at City Year, where I was thinking about how do we create powerful reflection experiences at scale. So we've realized there's a vast community of servant leaders, alumni of AmeriCorps and Teach for America, City Year, Peace Corps, or military veterans, people who as young adults chose to make this really serious commitment to service. But currently only a small sliver of them raise their hands to enter the arena, to enter politics. So how do we recruit them? 
And the approach we're taking is a reflection experience. We created a curriculum called Answering the Call, which is very much designed on similar principles to the IJ. And, and based on this you know, kind of living systems thing, the first thing we need to do is give people a space to get clear within themselves about whether they personally feel called to step up to run for office. It's not a technical training and it's not a motivational seminar and it's not a panel with three elected officials telling you about their experiences. It's just space to explore some really profound questions that only each of us can answer for ourselves of, do I feel called to this? And we found it very powerful. That's, you know, inevitably some percentage of folks come out of this saying, now that I've had the space to kind of clear my mind and listen carefully to that little whisper in my soul, I do feel called and I'm crystal clear that this is my next step and we start people from that turning inwards and doing the inner work to to listen to themselves interesting that sounds cool well good luck with everything hey where can our listeners find you or your work online i see that you blog every now and then well i am a huffington post blogger so you can uh, check me out there and that's currently the only place (laughs) i do have a book coming out in march Oh, that yeah? will be uh, on, on race and social change, where there, there will be a website coming soon for that. So stay tuned. I'll keep you posted about that. That's great. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope to continue this conversation both here and in other spaces. Maybe those, you know, those spaces that are clearly made for just this particular thing. Fantastic. It's a pleasure joining you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And we're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. Tweet us at Visions of Ed if you're doing something creative in education. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And if you give us a five-star review, we might even read it on the air. How exciting would that be? And I hear that if you give us a five-star review, it helps more people find this podcast. So please do so. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. (laughs) You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. All right.